The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello there and welcome back to another edition of the Cambridge Film Show, broadcasting here on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Thank you so much to Ian Dearborn for the last hour and the regular shout-outs, but now it's time to head into the world of the cinema and we can give our team's top recommendations to get you running to the multiplexes and also what they might suggest that you avoid. Get something cold to drink, something to munch, sit back and enjoy the next hour of varied opinions on the Cambridge Film Show. It might feel like we're in some slight movie doldrums before the huge releases of Barbie Oppenheimer and Mission Impossible in the next month, but we have got some options for everyone, I promise, some to stream and some to sit in glorious air-conditioned cinemas for. I'm Emma Marchant, coasting with the deliciously summery Ozzy Osman today, because that's the way we roll and she's too good not to. Oh, how lovely. Hello, everyone. And we are joined by regular reviewers, Vicky Eyre. Hello. Luke Irwin. Good afternoon. Will Johnston. Good day. And Stuart Pask. Hello. Also on the buttons. For this hour, we're going to be looking at Wes Anderson's latest pastel and pastel-coloured and meticulously blocked opus, Asteroid City, Disney Plus's biography of the godfather of Marvel and comic art in general, Stan Lee, and Jennifer Lawrence's return to the big screen in age-gap rom-com, No Hard Feelings. We're also going to cast an eye over the sequel to Netflix's action smash of 2020, Extraction, imaginely called Extraction 2, and take a trip to the musical that no one thought we deserved, The Greatest Day, with the songs of Take That. But to kick the show off, let's take a time-bending adventure with the fastest superhero in their latest incarnation. Tell me something. You can go anywhere. Another timeline. Another universe. So why do you want to stay and fight to save this one? Because this is the world where my mom lives. I'm not going to lose her again. Time has a pattern that it can't help reliving. Different people, different worlds, drawn to each other like magnets. was a little touch of the trailer for The Flash. Guardians of the Galaxy 3, the latest thing from DC, from the DC universe. Now, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, I think, is still in cinemas and signified a real critical and commercial success for Marvel after maybe a couple of dicey years. James Gunn has now switched teams and is heading up the beleaguered DC universe, which has never quite made it. His reboot of Suicide Squad, Suicide Squad seemed to show a new direction into a less dark and tedious superhero universe and into something a bit more fun. And this latest reboot, reboot of The Flash, bringing Ezra Miller's super-fast junior Justice League member front and centre into a multiverse and time travel story, and heralding the much-anticipated return of Michael Keaton's Batman, should have continued this upward streak. But it has hit cinemas perhaps with the film being overshadowed by the off-screen issues of its star, many reboots and alternative endings as far as they understand, and some reports of awful CGI. But it's our job to tell you what we thought of it. So, Stu, more to the point, in a world of multiverse films, we're back in a split-universe timeline. Why should people see this more than other ones? Why Why should they see this more than other ones? Um, that's a... That's a it's a hard sell. <laughs> How, why should they say? Put it this way: with everything that's going on around this film, there's been it's been marred obviously by the allegations against Ezra Miller and his charges and everything about that. And and we've known for a long time this has been a very a problematic production 
generally. So when I went and saw this on Monday, I had very, very low expectations to the point where I was wondering why am I even spending my money at all to go and see this in the cinema? Why should I just wait until it comes out on a streamer and watch it then? But actually, I was pleasantly surprised. It's actually got a relatively half-decent story, you know. It's it's a fair take on, on their adaptation of the multiverse and they, and they sort of go along their own sort of um, means of explaining how their multiverse works compared to other things using the classic examples of uh, Back to the Future uh, and and sort of gentle nudges towards the Marvel universe's interpretations of the multiverse. And um, I think, you know, watching it, I, like I said, I was pleasantly surprised. Like, we've got Michael Keaton back as his 1980s incarnation of Batman. Um, we've got Michael Shannon back as Zod from the early 2000s, Man of Steel. Um, it's, 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 it's riddled with cameos, um, which some are better than others. Um, and uh, But I think really whenever you have a Batman on the screen, that's when you're winning watching this film. <laughs> Vicky, you and I went to go and see this together on a Saturday morning. It felt like the old days. Literally my favourite thing to do. <laughs> um, and you you seem to be emotionally invested. I mean, I'm not going to lie, oh. Vicky, you did cry at the end. Oh, yeah. um, and I know that you, I, a lot of us this week were all a bit like, oh, a DC, you know, a, yeah. a, another DC adaptation. And, and we, But did it also break through and speak to you? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thank you for outing me for crying, but if you give me a good, um, you know, a sad parent goodbye that um, Mara Belvedere, who plays Nora Allen, uh, the, Flash's um, the Flash's mother, then yes, it was a very emotional moment in the cinema for me, but that was probably the only thing I felt um, throughout the whole thing. And I don't think I've ever publicly admitted it, but Michael Keaton is my favourite Batman. I love yes. him. Yes. I love him completely as Bruce Wayne. He was the only one that, you know, had the, the charisma, the funniness, the like the the really the joyful part of being a billionaire. And um and then he's gone and played the dark <laughs> the dark, surly, older version of the newer versions of Batman in this. And he couldn't save the film for me. It was I've probably forgotten most of it already and throughout all of it. I was just thinking about the new Spider-Man film and how most of Barry Allen's life, like these are all canon events, as you would say, and he just had to let them unfurl. And I was like, you're messing up so much with all the multi-space knowledge that we do have throughout all these comic books that have intertwined. I was like, this is just another silly mistake and I couldn't bear to watch so you it. you were deeply into the physics of it. I mean, I'm not going to lie, any universe which has Michael Keaton as Batman as opposed to Batfleck is a good universe in my mind. <laughs> um, Luke, for all their issues, this is... Ezra Miller's film. I mean, literally, it's a it's a bog off. I mean, he's playing two versions of himself against each other throughout, you know, throughout seventy percent of the film, and it is a lot of them. So, how did that work? I mean, yeah, how did that work for you? Because I think he's, they are a bit of a marmite actor. Maybe I've read reviews on both sides. I um, I can't believe that I'm in this position because I didn't even like Ezra Miller in the you know in his early career before being um embroiled in this extracurricular activity. <laughs> um, but I thought he was really terrific in this film. And I, it's they. Oh, pardon me. Um, was terrific in this film. And I really had a nice time with this. Um, it's been... Um, it's faced a lot of criticism, some that's been mentioned, but also some more um, 
trivial stuff. So there was, before the film came out, James Gunn, who's the new uh, head of um, the DC, described this as the best superhero film of all time. And I think everyone sort of rolled their eyes slightly at that and went, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll believe it. Um, and even though I, I can't quite go as far as to say it's anywhere close to that, I think this is a perfectly adequate film bordering on good and I think part of the reason for that is I didn't know until after I'd watched the film that this was written by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein alum of um, Freaks and Geeks of course John yeah. Francis Daly love him I mean, um, more recently they did um, Dungeons and Dragons early this year and the much lauded Game Nights and I think if you like those films that it, they bring through the wit and the charm and the pathos in this I think it's surprising how emotionally invested I was in this. I think, um, although Vicky may have only liked the, the end of the emotionally film... Emotionally manipulated is what I'm going to say. <laughs> wow, I'm, I, yeah, well, there's emotionally manipulated here, there's adequate bordering on good here, there's surprisingly impressed over by Stu. Um, Will, you saw this too. Now, one of the, as you say, one of the other comments that's been about this is about the CGI. Now, obviously, in the last five years, there's been you know, ad infinitum conversations about CGI in superhero films. This starts off with an incredibly audacious scene with some sort of falling babies. That's one bit of the <laughs> and then, which, But then at the end as well, it, it does sort of fall. And there's obviously CGI with Ezra Miller's face. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, was the CGI in this any worse or any better for you than other recent superhero films? Does it deserve the rap it's getting? I've seen worse CGI. Um, especially, I think it was in... The Mandalorian, when they brought back Luke Skywalker. Yeah, um, it, that was bad. But I think with Zod, it was pretty awful because he's supposed to be wearing a mask, but it's just. It's just absolutely. I can't describe it. I think, by the to be fair, that that whole last scene where you, where Zod's there and Supergirl comes yeah. into it as well, they, that looked completely like a video game to me, and not even a good video game. But up until then, I thought maybe, for example, that opening scene with the falling babies and the falling. I was having hospital. a giggle. That was um, I was but were you not meant to? Were you, yeah. were you not kind of meant to be having a no. giggle? That is that not what I say? This kind of thing where James Gunn's trying to break us away from the Batman versus Superman just turgid destruction of. No, so, absolutely. It brought like a joy to the start of the film. I got waves of nostalgia of just like, oh, this is how bad kids' films were when I was younger. You know, bring back <laughs> Spy Kids 3D. This is the kind of level it was on. But um, even that, I just couldn't warm to it in a way. And I had like no expectations, like many people. But if you look into who created this film, you've got obviously James Gunn as the master head. But you've got Andy Machete who did the I was it about reboots. to say that, which and were brilliant. They well, were. In, I, in my opinion, as a like a horror like fan, I love them. We and, all know how I yeah. feel about Stephen King in yeah. this studio. And yeah. yeah, they were really, really. They brought something. Films. They brought something. I thought maybe that's what this was going to, like that was going to happen to this, and it just didn't deliver. And although um. You know, James Wan's had a good start to the universe. I hope that this was a previous project that he just had to finish off to kind of put up. I with. think with all the with all the issues going on off screen, yeah. who quite knows where you know where yeah. the character of the Flash is going to go, or, yeah. or whether or not they can even keep Ezra Miller in it. Which actually, I'm I'm with Luke. He they were probably my favourite thing in it. I mm. I was surprised. I greatly enjoyed their performance. One of the things that I was pleasantly surprised by um, after the shambles of the visual effects, and obviously there's been a lot of conversations behind the scenes about the issue with the with the visual effects being is that if it looked like it was made in a week, it probably because it was, whereas 
someone was comparing to me the other day the, the amount of uh, the amount of time it takes to put something together like the Transformers movie like all the individual components to make up a character like Optimus Prime for example they have to spend the time and they do spend the time to animate them and make them look really impressive and cinematic but the the visual effects artists in Hollywood at the moment have really sort of been pushed sort of to the grindstone to try and turn around these fantastic Hollywood visual effects on a not on a shoestring budget by any means, but just not the amount of time needed to make them believable. And that's, it's just really disappointing. But on the flip side of that, the, the impressive thing is, is there was some fantastic costume design. Mm. Um, if only, if, if only the, like, the, the Flash's costume was a bit gaudy, but I think yeah. Sasha Cowell's Supergirl costume was spot on. There was all the pictures on Instagram mm. afterwards, um, and that got a lot of praise, and for good reason. <laughs> yeah, Luke. I actually... It's funny that Stuart brings up the fact that the visual effects in this film aren't believable. And I wonder whether we've been lulled into the sense that visual effects have to be believable. So we mentioned there's this, this opening sequence where Ezra Miller has to line up this <laughs> string of babies that are falling out of the building. And it's such an absurd sequence. And I think it's it's pointing to just how ludicrous the character of The Flash is. I, I am not sure and, that any of you are old enough to remember this, but it made me think of that original Game Boy Nintendo bouncing babies, where you have to bounce the babies off the trampolines outside a fire station. And that is a really niche comment. But honestly, I think that was pointing towards the 40-somethings in the audience. Because I, I, I do think there's something... Because I think we forget that comic books are often mm. quite silly. So the in the, the the Flash comic books, his method of time travel is a treadmill, like he's got a magic treadmill that he runs very quickly on to travel through time. And even even though we get we get the we get this Chrono Ball, which has also suffered a lot of criticism for the way that it for its visual effects, I think there's something kind of naff about it that reminds me of sort. Of like Richard Donner's Superman, oh. and even though the, the effects in that film might have been limited by, you know, they may have been trying to make it as believable as possible in 1981. Again, I don't think that's that's definitely not um, a mistake. You know, the, the, the idea, you know, in the original 1981, he had to fly around the world backwards to do it. I don't think, I think this is all very conscious decisions. Whether or not they quite come off remains to be seen, but I'm with you. I think they were visually striking. Will, last word to you, so we really have to move on. No, I'm actually thinking that they just threw every single part of Batman into it from each of the films which I think went well together visual, visual effects aside it was still a brilliant film and also people said should Grant Gustin stand in well he's decided he's not doing it anymore so I think we just have to see who we have as a Flash next I think then that we can safely say that the Flash gets a pretty solid recommendation here particularly if you like superhero movies maybe break away from the fact you think you can only see Marvel like me and go and dip your toes into the DC universe it is a 12A and it's showing everywhere in IMAX and normal screenings over to Yossi thank you very much next up we are getting a bit whimsical and it is Asteroid City you're not here we're not there the car exploded Come get the girls, I have to stay here with Woodrow. I'm not the chauffeur, I'm the grandfather. Where are you? Asteroid City, Farm Route 6, Mile 75. Junior stargazers and space cadets. Each year we celebrate Asteroid Day, commemorating September 23rd, 3007 BC, when the arid plains meteorite made Earth impact. Holy 
Toledo. That's Mitch Campbell. You're very good in the one about the tramp in the brothel Thank who you. gets amnesia and Thank becomes you. a pediatrician. You were very awesome. Actually, maybe my favorite character ever. I don't know why nobody else liked it. Oh. Big release this week is Wes Anderson's sci-fi comedy, drama and play within a play, Asteroid City. Directed and written by the highly, uh, highly aesthetic auteur Anderson, who's actually fresh, I believe, from a TikTok. TikTok trend where people were making um, TikToks as if they were Wes Anderson's films. Um, joined by an absolutely stacked cast, I will read the list later on when we do when we get into the chat. Um, but the film depicts the events of a junior stargazer convention in a retro futuristic version of 1955. Some world-changing dramatic events completely disrupt the scholarly competition. Um, Vicky, I'm going to come to you because. I think you're a big fan of Wes Anderson and I remember the last film that we discussed, The French Dispatch, you loved it. Whereas I was kind of getting a little bit tired of the same old thing, we, well, in my opinion, that we tend to see from Wes Anderson. Mm. Um, with this film, does it offer anything new? And if it does, is that a good thing for you who loves Wes Anderson so much? Um, I, I will say I do love Wes Anderson, but this is probably my French dispatch in your <laughs> you. Um I didn't like the film. I, oh my gosh. Um, I love Wes Anderson. I've loved almost everything he's done. And even if I didn't love it, I felt some emotional turmoil for disliking it. And with this, I went in, you know, hopes high, opening night, and it just did nothing for me. Apart from, you know, it was mildly amusing in places I love the cast um, but even the cast was spurting out dialogue at me that I really had the capacity to take in and yet it was like just brushing past me and I just couldn't get on board with this one this one is pretty and the music has the formula for most of his films but it's like it's like I couldn't take it anymore. I just wanted to get out and I loved it. <laughs> I loved the French Dispatch. Everyone said that was, it was too much Wes. It was like Wes, like, and he's been given too much power or like in some ways, but this was probably it for me. Um, not that I'll ever give up on him because I love everything he's done, but I just don't think I'll rewatch this film. Um, oh I don't know if I'm having a bad week. Oh, but... no, Vicky, I'm absolutely distraught for I know. You. I can't say. Okay, um, Luca, I'll come to you next. I don't know how much of, a, of an Anderson fan uh, you are. I think you're, I am perhaps the complete opposite of Vicky, but I would say that I'm, you know, I used to be a Wes Anderson fan, but he's sort of... I've been a bit gone off some of his more recent films. I began to think that you know, he continues to just make his film again and The French Dispatch was a breaking point for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know what it is about Asteroid City because I was very concerned that it was just going to be he's made his film again. But there was something, it felt like it was so far into Wes Anderson territory that it's gone all the way back around the other end to become enjoyable again. Um... Like he's been criticised often for like there's the proscenium arch approach where he's always pointing to the um the the constructed nature of his films and here it sort of it begins with talking about the playwright who's writing the film and then you get sequences where he's where the writer's talking about making the film and the actors suddenly break um, and it begins by describing the film as an apocryphal fabrication which is a classic Wes Anderson phrase <laughs> um, and it is I think. If you do struggle with Wes Anderson, may maybe you'll find this intolerable. Um, I think it's saved by just being so funny, though. Okay. I think, 
I think there's some, there's something about this film. Okay, so you're Vicky's going one mm. way, um, Luke's going the other way. Emma, are we crossing over at any point? I think maybe we are. Although, right, I need to give full full disclosure as well. I was not entirely sober. It was a very fun. I came, went to go see it with my very best friend who was over from the states, and we were not entirely sober, but we were very excited about it. And it was a packed preview screening. Oh man. Um, yeah, like Vicky said, it's pretty, but then I said that to someone else and someone says, the first thing you're telling me is the colours are nice, Emma. I'm not sure that this is, you know, the most blinding praise. I think Wes Anderson is not, you're not, I've never really got emotionally involved with Wes Anderson film because that's not the design. You are meant to be wowed by the, you know, the detail in his shots, the composition of his shots. Like you said, the way he mixes the music and the and the costumes and, and, and the colour palette. All of that is, you can always be in awe of that. But I think this was, you were almost twice as removed as you are from standard Wes Anderson films due to this whole play within a play, which I also, again, disclosure not entirely so, but really found quite confusing. So when Vicky said that there were swathes of dialogue that just kind of were brushing past her, I know exactly what you mean, because although it is a delight to see people like Maya Hawke in this and Scarlett Johansson joining you, you and Tom Hanks joining your standard repertory company of, of, of Jason Schwartzman and Edward Norton and um, Jeffrey Wright and, um, and, and you know, and a touch of God, God, Jeff Goldblum as well, Rupert Friend was delightful. It was delightful and there are only worse ways to spend an hour and a half at the cinema. But... It, it was, yeah, it, it it was almost teeth-grindingly overly intellectual, I think, is my, my feeling. My favourite part of this film, because I do have favourite parts, like, I'm not, I'm just, I was just, I'm just <laughs> upset. Um, um, I think, honestly, it was, like, the, just the actors talking just between two characters, like, none of this, like, whole, like, charade, like, there's, like, six of them in one scene, and I can't focus, like, maybe that's my fault, but I was... Really, it was Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson's like kind of just the like, kind of combattery they had of being in a lockdown situation, and they were just kind of comforting each other. Or even a standout performance that I didn't even realize was going to happen was Margot Robbie's character. I was completely enthralled in the dialogue that she gave as um, Jason Schwartzman's um, dead wife in the play. Um, but then when you come out of the play into the theatre where the play is happening, she's just an other actress across the balcony. That was an incredible scene where I did get the full capacity of probably what he was trying to do throughout. But in that moment, I like truly saw it and it only lasted for about two minutes and then we're back with a fast-pacedness and with no real conclusion to most of the film itself. It's just kind of a, a story that happened and will not deeply affect me in any way um, but there is like there's some cute performances and it's not like Emma said there's worst ways to spend an hour and a half yeah because uh, I suppose uh, w- what I'm going to ask is we've we've all got an opinion of Wes Anderson before we go and see this film right I mean I I'm a little bit with Luke in that I didn't really enjoy the French uh, the French Dispatch so I was kind of thinking this is going to irritate me um vicky vicky you you love wes anderson and you've actually ended up disappointed but let's say for somebody new who has never seen a wes anderson film before is there enough in this to keep them entertained and to want them coming back to see something else I'm unsure. I think I said this about the French Dispatch. I think at the time I said, crikey, don't go into this if you're a Wes Anderson virgin because you'll need to start, you'll need to like, you need entry-level Anderson. You need to build up to it. With like a Moonrise Kingdom or a a Fantastic Mr. Fox or something. Absolutely. So I'm 
To be honest, I'm, I'm not sure. I, th- I think it depends on if, if you are perhaps a very artistically minded, youthful intellectual, then you might be deeply into it. But I think if you're a bog standard cinema goer who's paying, you know, eight quid fifty to go and be entertained, you might, like I say, you might just come out going, this is the most, you know, audaciously pretentious thing I've ever seen. This I... is the tenet. This is the tenet of Wes Anderson's. Oh, this is the Christopher okay. Nolan's tenet of Wes Anderson's career. It's going to divide. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay. Wow. Vicky. I don't. You've sort of mentioned this being an intellectual film on several occasions i think if anything it's a it's a satire on i don't know whether maybe i'm just you know reaching to defend this film <laughs> but you have that you have um edward norton popping up like he plays like this 50 style playwright who's very intellectual and then the play that we see which is the film asteroid city is just absolutely bananas and then it ends with this pseudo philosophical sort of brexian final sequence um I think this film's just having a bit of fun. And I, mm. I think the, the, in the conversation we've had so far, this film got solid laughs from the audience I was in. Okay. So maybe an audience who's not familiar with Wes Anderson, maybe it'll be great because they're not sick to death of this and they'll like, they'll like the whimsy and the humour. I think it's more a matter of whether you like whimsy and whether you like things to wash over you without particularly understanding what's happening. Yeah. More yeah. so than... Um, your sort of prior engagement with his films. Because I, I guess I'm just wondering if the whimsy, the whimsical nature of his films and the stacked cast and the um, pretty colours and all that is just kind of... it's The, the plot is sacrificed and the character development is sacrificed too much. It is, you know, it is very much a series of vignettes that will have stronger and weaker aspects. But there are plenty of films like that. Um, okay. Mostly Wes Anderson films. Mostly, <laughs> mostly so. Anyway, I mean, you, if you want to give it a go, it is showing at all three cinemas in Cambridge and it is a certificate 12A. Right, I'm going back to Emma. Well, that's because I'm going to ask you the questions on this one. <laughs> We're going to move on to a jukebox musical that may have passed you by. Swear on the band. We're never going to lose touch. Win tickets to see your favourite boy band reunite in Athens. Are you ready? I am ready. Today this could be... Are you screaming yet, Rachel O'Flynn? Big fan of you, Rachel. I'm their biggest fan of the whole entire world. Do you know who you're going to take with you to see the boys? It's 25 years. Double trouble? <laughs> Where is Rachel? Here I am. You ladies are up front. Let it be said that we don't cover things for all people. The Take That Stage musical, The Band, has been adapted into a feature film by Koki Gidroy best known for her adaptation of Catelyn Moran's How to Build a Girl that came out to good reviews a couple of years ago. It stars Hot to Trot Ashlyn B as Rachel, a nurse who out of the blue wins a competition to see Take That, her favourite band as a child or as a teenager, on a reunion tour in Athens, and so rounds up her mates from 25 years ago to take them all on this jolly. Right, yours. Like I said, you are the only person here who's seen this, and you're not... one for the team. You're not a massive Take That fan, but you came out saying this really connected to you. It honestly really did. I think it completely surprised me. Um, so, 
as you've mentioned, this is a jukebox musical. It's based on the songs of Take That, but actually the boy band, the boy band in it, they're not Take That. They're actually referred to constantly throughout the film as just the boys. We're going to go and see the boys. And um, I sat there and I thought, what am I letting myself in for? And within five minutes, I was hooked. You've got um, Ashling B, who's kind of, she's looking back to her life as a teenager when she was absolutely infatuated with this boy band and starts imagining them just choreographing moves around her life and helping her around the kitchen. And it's just funny, it's charming. I think for me, what really surprised me was actually the story behind it. Take that. You, you could watch this and you don't have to really know take that. They make one cameo where you see them, but actually what really is the strength of this film is the story behind it about the fact that this is about a group of schoolgirls that have lost touch. Um, Ashling B wins this competition. They all go, they bring, they get back together to go to Athens to see this band that they all used to love. They're missing one member for very tragic reasons. And um, it's just, it was just really actually quite emotional. I must admit, I was really so. It, it's written by the guy who who wrote the stage musical, Tim Fifth, and um, I, for me, even down to the Athens location, this feels a little bit like under the shadow of Mamma Mia because it's hard not to yeah. be under the shadow of the most successful jukebox musical of all time. Is it a bit Mamma Mia light, or does it? I mean, is that harsh of me? No, not harsh at all. Because the first thing you think of when you think of a jukebox musical is is Mamma Mia, and um, Mamma Mia for me that's the perfect one, right? That is ultimate five star jukebox musical. I absolutely love Mamma Mia. This isn't quite getting there, but I'm not seeing them as the same film. I mean, Athens, you're right. There is a touch of there's a there's a scene where they're running around and dancing and going in fountains, singing along to I can't remember which take that song is, and I thought, oh, this has got like the Mamma Mia touch behind it, but. It's its own film, and um, I, I just think... I mean, some of the songs that are shoehorned in, they're not done as well as something like Mamma Mia, but you can kind of just ignore that. And I have to say, the performances are really there. Um, it was really good fun, and, you know, it will just... It will get you laughing, and it will get you crying. Well, I, and who can ask for more than that? You know, I think we've already covered three incredible... Yes, so after the emotional disconnect of Wes Anderson, maybe you fancy spending your £8.50 if, on just If something. you want to feel something again. Make you laugh <laughs> and make you cry. That is Greatest Days. It's showing at the Light in Cambridge and it's a certificate 12A. Yes. I'm that questioningly. I, I think it, it's an, at the Light until Wednesday. It's 12A and I think it's actually going to be on Prime Video soon as well. Excellent. That's Greatest Days. Cambridge 105 Radio. On Sunday afternoons, relax with Jazz Today and Pete Butchers. Join me for music at the cutting edge. Mainly new releases, many on small independent labels. The stuff you rarely get to hear elsewhere. I'll also be keeping a watching brief on jazz events in and around Cambridge, as well as chatting to local and visiting musicians. Jazz Today at 4pm every Sunday afternoon on Cambridge 105 Radio. Go on, challenge yourself. Remember when you were picked last for rounders in your school PE lessons every week? What about that time you asked Jenny to the college dance, but your best friend Dan had already asked her and she said yes? Or how about that promotion you went for and got pipped to the post by Mr. Big Shot? Well, don't worry about all that now. With General and Medical, you're never second best. For over 35 years, we've offered a wide range of private healthcare policies to suit all needs and budgets, catering to individuals and families, businesses and other organisations. To find out more, visit generalmedical.com. People first, always. 
The ultimate challenge is back. The 17th Cambridge Dragon Boat Festival in aid of Addenbrooke's Charitable Trust takes place on Saturday the 9th of September. Gather your colleagues, hit the water and hear the cheers of the crowd as you paddle your way to victory. No experience necessary. There's even a range of Bankside entertainment, food stalls and fun activities to guarantee a fabulous day out for all the family. For more information and to register your team, visit dragonboatevents.co.uk. The 2023 Cambridge Dragon Boat Festival, organised by New Wave Events and supported by Cambridge 105 Radio. Cambridge 105 Radio. The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. This is Cambridge 105 Radio and you are currently listening to the Cambridge Film Show where we are about halfway through our show. Um, we've got about 25 minutes left. If you've missed any of Cambridge 105 Radio's primetime music shows over the past few days, you can find them all in one place on the Cambridge 105 Radio website. Right now, you can stream Strawberry Fair, which was a couple of weeks ago. We've got 11 hours of recordings from our stage, including performances from Fred's House, the SGs and Ollie. Harris. There's also the latest editions of Stagger, Jazz Today, Urban Baseline and Chris Brown's Soul and Dance Show. Just visit cambridge105.co.uk and look for On Demand, so, so do check that out. But right now, we've got to go back to all things cinema. Coming up, we have some reviews from a, to a couple of the latest streaming releasings, but first, it's No Hard Feelings. Oh my God, Percy! The new house is right on the water. Come on, dog. You know how we do. TNT with lime. We're not open until noon. It is noon. It's 11.57. Now what time is it? It's 11.56. <laughs> Good Lord. You need to fire her. I can't fire her. She has a disability. What? No, I don't. You don't? No. Okay, so No Hard Feelings is a 2023 American comedy film directed by Gene Stupnitsky from a screenplay that he wrote with John, co-wrote, sorry, with John Phillips. It stars Jennifer Lawrence, who's also a producer, as down-on-her-luck young woman who answers a listing to date an introverted 19-year-old in order to get him out of his shell prior to college. Now, I think Luke and Will, you're on this one with me. Luke, um... Everyone seems to be talking about the raunchiness, she says, in inverted commas, of this film. I mean, I didn't actually think it was that bad. Um, <laughs> is it any different to the sorts of kind of rom-coms, raunchier rom-coms, let's say, that we've seen before? I think I think the best place to start with this is, so Gene Stupnitsky, he did, um, directed this film, he did Good Boys Good in Boys, 2019, yeah. um, which was produced by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, who did Superbad. Yeah. And I think we're very much in this territory again, where it's all sort of this quasi raunchy, but also actually surprisingly safe. Um, like the the setup of this film has been is faced criticism. So you have Jennifer Lawrence, who's in her early thirties, sort of being told to seduce a nineteen year old boy. Mm. And some of the critics said, "Oh, if, you know, if these genders were reversed, would this be acceptable?" But I think the film goes to to great lengths to sort of criticise its own premise. Yeah. And I think in so doing, it plays it safe enough where we're not really in any danger of any serious or transgressive territory. Um, and what you end up with is something that's reasonably fun, but um, perhaps not quite as difficult um, as perhaps it might 
either think it is or people want it to be. Because I'm not even sure it was trying to be difficult. I think it's not trying to really kind of hammer home any sort of message. That was my takeaway watching Mm. it. But in terms of just a sort of a comedy, let's say, there was actually, for me, quite a fair bit to like. How did you find it, Will? Um, Controversially, I'd probably say this is one of Jennifer Lawrence's best films. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I went into cinema thinking I'd have to compare it to, say, The Hunger Games, you know, just see how well she did and at the end of the day you can't compare them because this is just a great coming of age story beautifully written and acted and well i think she's back on the film market again yeah because we were saying luke weren't we before before the show we were trying to remember what the kind of last thing that jennifer lawrence has done i mean we talked about causeway which was an apple tv streaming and and something else but this is actually one of her first cinema releases for quite some time and i don't know about you but i found it quite refreshing to see her in this sort of role yeah i think the concern is when you see you know four-time oscar nominee i think or three or four-time oscar nominee popping up in a rom-com you think oh oh dear how how the mighty have fallen and i think there's been a lot of press that because not only has she not been in a lot of cinematic releases but the the films that she has been in haven't been well received Mm. and i think there was a fear that her career might slip away somewhat because i think the last the last really um well-regarded film she would have done would have been maybe um american hustle maybe or joy sort of has been re-evaluated yeah, ago, yeah that yeah. was eight years ago yeah mm. um so i think the concern is you're thinking oh, oh dear but she she really does a good solid job in this she doesn't put it, she doesn't think that she's too good for the rom-com and she's funny. Um, yeah, right? yeah, and, she, and she's yes, funny. Right. And she's I think she's always been funny, though, right? No, I know, but it's great timing. Yeah, mm. yeah, but she she is very funny in this. Um, was there anyone else, Will, in the cast that maybe st- stood out to you? Perhaps someone like Matthew Broderick, who we see. Uh, Matthew Broderick's character was he was a hilarious father who I think just very pushy helicopter parent. But I think Percy Becker, the character of Percy Becker, the nineteen-year-old virgin who'd never experienced life. Um, just, it, actually, it was a great performance from him because I can actually say I've been on both sides of the f- of the awkward flirting scenario, and <laughs> I think watching the film, you you could actually fe- you could feel it, and you could feel yourself cringe up. But at the end of the day, you were actually laughing inside at the same time. But definitely worth watch. Can I ask a question? Sorry, I know it. I haven't seen something. No, no, you guys will all have seen it. Luke said if you gender, people have been saying if you gender flip this, there would be you know questions raised. Mm. Um, and that's right. You know, we recently saw Leo Grande as well, which was a similar age gap story, different. But that's a, that was flipped where where the the younger person in that was the sort of effectively the sex, the sex worker. worker. Yes. And in this case, I, I don't know. Is there any comparison? Because I didn't like Leo, Leo Grande at all. But this looks fun from the trailer and fresh. Well, it's a completely different film. But the other thing I maybe thought of was something like Licorice Pizza, where uh, again you've sorry, Luke. Oh no, sorry. I think. So I can say that's a great comparison. And I think one of the things about Licorice Pizza is that film got really heavily criticised mm. for its quote-unquote awkward gender roles. And I think this is the issue when you try and do something and don't, because that film sort of just played it relatively straight in terms of it did address that it was awkward. Whereas I think this film goes to great lengths for everyone to comment um, about how awkward it is. So you also have... Um, character who pops up is like a male nanny and there's comments like oh that's not a job for a man and you have um there's a, a minor character who pops up he was had an affair with this teacher yeah. um and she ended up going to prison and sort of like this idea that it's you know it's cool 
when it's a young boy and an older woman. Um, I just wanted to go back to the cast very quickly. Yeah, Because I wanted, to, I wanted to point out that the parents played by Matthew Broderick and Laura Bonanti. There's about a 20-year age gap between them as well. And yeah. there's sort of In real life, no, yes. In real life, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's sort of no... Like, that's just considered conventional. They're both wonderful in the film. And I think um, Natalie Morales, who plays um, Jennifer Lawrence's best friend, she's... Um, she don't mostly done TV, but she also directed Plan B last year, which was a really lovely rom-com. Yeah. Um, as well, I thought she was she was a real standout in this. Okay, because it sounds like there's lot there's lots of positive things to come from this, and it's something that we would say to people: give it a go, especially if you want something a little bit light-hearted and something that you want to laugh at. So, um, brilliant! If you want to watch No Hard Feelings, it is currently showing at the View and the Light Cinemas, and it is a certificate fifteen. Emma, over to you. Well, I have been waiting for this. It is Thor on Netflix with flaming hands. Tyler, you were clinically dead nine months ago. But you survived. You fought your way back. You just have to find out why. We got a contract. Spring 2020, we were all locked down, if you remember. And Extraction, I think, was probably one of the first big films to either take the hit and go for a release or one of the first big films to make the decision it was going to, you know, hit streaming. So it came to Netflix as streaming only and I think was an enormous success. So three years on and the premise hasn't changed, we have Chris Hemsworth as Tyler Rake, the black ops specialist with a troubled past who was left for dead at the end of Extraction. They handily don't really mention how he comes back from being clinically dead, as you heard at the beginning of the trailer there. But it doesn't really matter because this sequel um, sees him taking on an entire Georgian crime gang with links to his own sort of lost love and and, and sad past. Um, Stu, let me start with you. I started watching this, didn't think I was enjoying it, and then ended up thoroughly converted. What is your feeling about Extraction? Are you here for a new action franchise? Yes. <laughs> yes, I am. I was immensely excited for this film. I think um, everyone who's in our little WhatsApp group chat knew how excited I was about this film coming out. I was a huge fan of the first one. It was a real lockdown treat. Um, and, and this one really builds upon that. Um, and I think the thing that's been talked about most, and I'm going to talk about it again here because it's the, one of the best bits of the entire thing, is as an in like about 20 minute long one shot in inverted commas. There's some sort of, I think some people say it's not really one shot because there are cuts in it, but it's, it's, it's effectively a one shot take of, of one long fight stroke extraction scene. And it is fantastically choreographed, it's excellent acting. Um, it's excellent choreography and excellent sort of visual portrayal how they put it together how it's all all. I just really liked it <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was stumbling on the words I can't explain how much I enjoyed it but it, it really sort of for anyone who's sort of familiar with the the sort of the Netflix um, Marvel series so Daredevil is the example I'll use that had a lot of sort of one shot corridor fight scenes and I felt elements of that in this um and 
I think Netflix at the moment are really going hard on action because they've recently signed Arnold Schwarzenegger to be like their head of action. Um, but my God, it's so good, and I'm, I'm so glad that I was so excited for it, and I wasn't disappointed. <laughs> That's just delightful. That's one of my favourite reviews of the year, I think. Vicky, um, Stu, have you have you seen you've seen it? You looked you looked surprised that I came to you. I haven't watched it. <laughs> I'm going to ask my question to Yossin. Yossi, um, Stuart touched on that just there by saying about the excellent choreography, and this is directed again. Sam Hargraves, who is an ex stunt guy, is back to direct this under you know it's, it's billed also as a Russo Brothers production, who obviously are the masterminds behind Endgame. Um, We've been talking about CGI in the Flash and comic book. You know, as, as, as Stuart said, this is really hardcore action again. Were you here for this? I actually was, and I did not expect to be. I went into this very, very sceptical. I thought, oh, God, I'm in another one. I can't be bothered. And it was, it was really, really well done. I think in terms of just a pure action, it's amazing to watch. I mean, we've, that 20-minute that take was absolutely brilliant and you've it's, at times I mean it's ridiculous you've got one bit where Chris Hemsworth is standing on a speeding train shooting down a helicopter and you're like wow what I mean that's it's bonkers but somehow you're sucked in and it's just I mean at first I will admit I had no idea what was going on the first like the first bit I think you said the first 20 minutes you weren't sure because they don't really give you much backstory but by the time you get into the, all the action you don't really care anyway and it all just comes to a massive head and I, I have to say I really enjoyed it Luke, that's a good point. We were talking about this, weren't we? In the I could call it the green room version, that's so posh, isn't it? Just before we came on out, we were talking about the fact that this does expect you to remember some character, which maybe I seem to remember the first one was really, really dark and it was really hot. We were in lockdown. It was really hard to kind of see it because you're trying to watch it on the TV with light coming in. This isn't so dark. This was easier. But I was baffled for the first 20 minutes. Were you, were you straight into it going, I remember everything about this? I- I'm with you, Tyler Rake. This film lost me within the first 20 minutes. Um, but that may be because I, I didn't particularly remember the first Extraction. I'm a bit boggled by everyone's positive responses to this film. I remember Extractions of being the film that came out about a month into lockdown when everyone was just starting to lose their minds and they were so excited that there was something new to watch. And then when I saw there was a second one, I thought, but, but Chris Hemsworth died at the end of the first film. <laughs> And then they just spend, there's a 20-minute montage at the beginning of this film where it's exclusively there to justify its existence, where it's like he goes through physical therapy and, you know, he starts, you know, beating things up and, you know, lifting weights and you're like... Classic Rocky Luke, classic oh. Rocky montage in the snow with the kind of with the with the logs. I mean, is it even a film if they don't split some logs to show them? But, I, but out? I, in in those Rocky montages, at least they were halfway through the film. <laughs> I think the the issue that I have here is that, like, yes, it's bigger than the first film. There's more action. There is you know crazy stuff going on, but it's just as boring as the first one. Ooh, bless me. I right. disagree. Well, I, well, I know, well, I, I mean, I know you two do. Will, let's come to you and find out. That- I thoroughly enjoyed it, um, but like Luke said, I didn't exactly remember the first one exactly, but I think it kind of just flowed away from from the start of, from the end of the original film, so it carried on, and I was actually mostly surprised by the appearance of a certain Idris Elba. He just popped up some reason 
Yep. Well, and like it, it threw me. He's only in it for sort of two very. Yeah, I exactly. But I'm going me. to make. I'm going to make a guess here, though, that there is going to be an extraction three. That's what I, I mean, I, and I, I'm, yes. I'm genuine. I mean, and I think I was going to ask this question. How do we feel? Will I come to you? Yeah. Because I was talking to you. How do you feel about Chris Hemsworth helming this kind of rugged? Because it doesn't give him the opportunity to show his comic chops, which Chris Hemsworth is very good at. This is a much, much darker, more brooding role. Um, but he also gets to use his Australian accent, I suppose, which maybe is fun. And, and, but, and so, yeah, it's very different from Thor. Do you think he's got enough charisma to be able to helm this kind of thing for maybe another two or three films? I think maybe can do a maximum of two films because it feels kind of John Whiskesque in some way where the the fight scenes were just choreographed in that same way and the guy that will refuse to that refuses to die is so I think maybe two films but it'll be overkill after that unlike the Fast and Furious but we won't talk about that today. <laughs> um, Stu, I because you loved it so much. I'm just going to say that um, this. The, the extraction itself that it is a link it, it's linked to his ex-wife i believe it's her sister and her children they need to get them away from this georgian criminal but the georgian um the georgian gangsters themselves seem to have an in, enormous budget to get what seemed to be people they didn't really <laughs> care very much do, do we feel it was lacking perhaps in a sort of baddie that you could grasp onto or did you just not care because the action was so good i, I thought the um the you know it, it was a fairly sort of Sort of, t- sort of a very sort of stereotypical build-up of the characters. Oh yeah, they they just happen to be the crime lords, happen to be effectively running the country. And in the opening sequence, they just basically establish control of the budget, <laughs> and um, suddenly they have the means of the country at their disposal. So I think it, it's it's very sort of very sort of tightly spun around that that's how they can afford to do all this crazy stuff. But still, at the same time, they are just henchmen and I and I had flashbacks to Austin Powers gold member <laughs> with Michael Kanka oh you just get on the floor <laughs> you're not going to do anything mate <laughs> I think that we would all say from around the table here this is a classic example of what streaming can do really well because you know if you want a Friday night just a cracking Friday night a bit of entertainment with no well maybe not Luke but with where you're not having to uh, where you're only spending your Netflix streaming streaming service subscription you really really should watch Extraction 2 yes it's a certificate 15 and it's streaming on Netflix Thank you very much, Emma. So, our final film of the show today, and it's continuing the sort of comic book elements of the show, but not quite in the same way as The Flash. We're going to finish off with a new documentary about Stan Lee, who you may know as the Marvel extraordinaire. Um, this film, is it tells us a little bit about his early life, his rise to influence in the world of comic books and pop culture. Um, it, it's, a, it's an introduction to him, and it gives good backstory. So, Emma, actually, I'm going to come... To you first. Yes. Um, so the man, the not really a myth, the legacy. Um, how does this film do as an introduction to Stan Lee, bearing in mind that it's kind of all told in his own words? I think it does very well as an introduction to Stan Lee. You are not going to expect a Stan Lee official biography coming out on Disney Plus to be anything other than complimentary. It's not going to do. De- and I, I, to be honest, other than his oeuvre of work and his generally incredibly cool persona in his later years and his cameos I wouldn't have I didn't know really anything about Stan Lee's backstory or life and you know and it is an inspiring story he's come you know he came from a very impoverished background during the Great Great Depression there is a 
beautiful tale of the love, the absolute love of his life, Joan Lee, and the one child they were. That, that, I just found that incredibly touching. But I think for me, because, uh, yeah, although I've seen all the, all the Marvel stuff, I am probably someone, this was an introduction, and I thought it did that introduction really very, very well. It isn't the most, you know, it's not the most sort of um, riveting documentary I've ever seen, or it's not particularly done in a hugely original way. It has some nice anime, it has this animation touches in it, but do you need that when you've got Stan Lee telling his own story? And, you know, you've got Stan Lee. What else do you need? I feel like the prop backgrounds gave great perspective to that. Obviously, Stan Lee is like, like that's his um, paper name like he's almost a character in his own um, when he uses that and you see all these obviously his movie cameos but I really thought the background gave the sense that he was just you know like a writer in an office yeah. with people surrounding him and like that that's the environment where this incredible franchise was born from so I did really appreciate the kind of the models which is like set in a like, little office background to kind of give perspective to what that originated from like it went from Timely to Atlas to Marvel yeah I, I do wonder and forgive me for going down a little bit of a cynical route here but, but this is all kind of very much from Stan Lee's perspective mm. and I I do want to ask what you think in terms of do we need to watch this a little bit with perhaps a critical eye because I I did like it but at some points I felt that it's very kind of self-promoting and we know that there's been some debate about how much credit Stan Lee has taken for some Marvel characters and some of the writing so I just wonder if anyone else got a little bit of that sense and just thought you know it's a little bit it it does introduce you to that like um, I think there's moments in the documentary where it kind of picked up the pace a little bit when they introduced the kind of you know the disgruntledness over the Spider-Man origin compared to the artist and the writer and the arguments that are happening and then the whole fact that Jack Kirby was his partner for so long and then he the son in the documentary is like and he left and then there was this quite um, tone changing like phone call interview that um, where he's originally started with saying happy birthday to him and it just got to the point where they were just like but I did this and did you even do this and it just kind of and then it was lying it was like oh egos were never involved at the beginning but obviously when Marvel got more popular the egos became a thing and it just shows that even like maybe Stanley isn't the sole person but also like egos were getting involved and he was like the face of Marvel so at that point it was just one whoever came out on top yeah I think I think that's a really good point um Luke, just finish off with you. And um, in terms of the the documentary, we see kind of a mix of fish. And you've got the the sort of clay props. Um, you've got the photos. You've got archival footage. Did this help to give a really nice picture of Stanley's yeah, life I for think, you? Um, this film was really at risk of being a you know a dramatized version of Stanley's Wikipedia page. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it is entirely based on it's mostly archival footage, and even though. Vicky sort of praised some of the more critical aspects um, with the with the tension with Jack Kirby. I don't think it does that. Re- it's kind of glosses over it. You know, it's very yeah. much Stan Lee's film. Yeah. Um, and then the the thing that saves this film and makes it worth watching is, like you say, the visuals. So it's directed by a uh, David Gelb, who did Jiro uh, Dreams of Sushi, another yeah. document, a very well regarded documentary from a couple of years ago. And I think he brings a visual flourish to the film that gives you something a little bit more than just, you know, browsing YouTube videos for clips of Stan Lee giving presentations to university graduates. Um, 
I do think of the real Achilles heel of this film, though, is that it is such a hagiography. It is, you know, a Stanley documentary released on Disney+. Plus. I don't really think there's enough critical eye to sort of make this anything more than a, a general introduction that's made in a vaguely cinematic way. Okay, but I mean, some people might be looking for that, and if they do want an introduction to Stanley and his life, it, it, it does do that. So if you want to see it, it's currently showing on Disney Plus. I have no idea what certificate it is, but I'm, I'm fairly sure it's pretty safe for the kids <laughs> to watch. So so give that a go. Right, we we need to finish, but I'm going to really quickly whip round. Can everyone tell me their film of the fortnight, Stuart? Uh, I'm going to say Extraction Two, definitely. Emma, The Flash, Vicky. Oh, God, it's Asteroid City. What? <laughs> Will? No hard feelings. Luke? Asteroid City. And mine is Greatest Days, I don't care. So that was brilliant. Right, so thank you very, very much. Lovely, wonderful co-host Emma and this amazing, amazing team. Our next show is on Saturday, the 8th of July, where we'll be talking about some different films, including probably Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, amongst others. Thank you very much, everyone, and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Cambridge 105 Radio and on the latest Cambridge Film Show. We will be looking at Tom Hanks' ode to curmudgeonly neighbours with hearts of gold in A Man Called Otto, Noah Baumbach's adaptation of Don DeLillo's postmodern epic White Noise, also stick around for a mix of murder mystery and gothic horror in Pale Blue Eye, and the true life story of the inspiring civil rights activism that came out of utter grief in Till. Listen now at cambridge105.co.uk.